Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us in taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan. So grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have and you dig in what we do, please tell a friend, give us a good rating, leave a review. Easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. That's politics and with the and spelled out, politicsandreligion.us. So before I introduce today's esteemed guest, we are joined once again after a long <laughs> absence by my dear old dad, Ronnie Nathan. Dad, I don't know if you know this, but we, we've we had people asking about you. My my new friend, Mike from Michael from Michigan, he said, where's Ronnie? I, we, we, we want some more Ronnie. So here you are. How you doing, Pops? I'm okay. I'm okay. Good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Rabbi Michael E. Harvey. Rabbi Mike is the Amazon bestselling author of Let's, Let's Talk, A Rabbi Speaks to Christians. An ordained rabbi, he has led congregations and served as a hospital chaplain. Rabbi Mike is passionate about social justice, interfaith cooperation, and bringing deep Jewish learning to the lay public. He has followed these passions in serving his community, including founding and directing the Interfaith Council of the Caribbean, as well as directing the interfaith leaders of Greater Lafayette. He also serves on the Rabbinic Advisory Council of the American Jewish Archives. When he isn't writing, Rabbi Mike can be found building community and offering a listening ear in a different kind of congregation as a bartender in Indiana. Rabbi Mike, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for that uh, reading of my, of my bio. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, no one really uh, knows what to do with the last part, uh, but the truth is... Um, this is heavy stuff that I do, and bartending is really ha has become over the years sort of a fun outlet for me to just, um, you know, shed the seriousness out and um, and just have some fun. Yeah, that that's interesting because some of my most difficult theological conversations happen in bars. Absolutely, <laughs> and being a bartender isn't that much different from being a rabbi um at certain points part rabbi part psychologist therapist exactly. yeah um yeah it's true my, my dad and i have had many conversations over a good whiskey or a good glass of wine it uh eases eases the first part of the conversation sometimes but uh, i could definitely see that so i i was curious to start is being a rabbi something you considered as a kid growing up or I, I guess it's a, a multi-part question. At what point did you decide to go about all it takes to become a rabbi? And more specifically, how did you start to determine your specific vocational pursuits? Because you started congregational, but right. then you found a very specific uh, route to take. That's right. 
Um, so I, you know, there's a couple stories to this. I'm what you call a second career rabbi. Um, I was uh, third, I turned 29 or 30 while I was in Israel um, or my first year of seminary, um, uh, whereas some people go from college to right after. But um, I was sort of what HUCJAR hopes uh, a person will be is someone who went, went to college, lived uh, within the secular world, learned responsibility, management techniques, all that sort of stuff, and then uh, went to rabbinical school. That being said, when I was in high school, I did spend career day with my rabbi in St. Louis uh, because it had sort of occurred to me. Um, and it was a, a wonderful experience that I fondly remember, but it was, you know, 10 years, 11 years later that um, I finally got back to it. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I was sort of at a existential crisis, not sure what to do. I had all of these things that I like to do, but didn't want to do them all. You know, I love to teach, but I didn't just want to be a teacher. I love to learn, but it's hard to just learn. Um, I studied psychology and social work, but I didn't just want to be that. Um, you know, different hats that I wore sort of began to come together. And by the time I was 29, a little bit, actually 28, um, I made the decision to go to seminary, to rabbinical school and um, went to Israel, did Olpan, learned, you know, college level Hebrew in six months, applied, got in, and the rest is history. So when I was in seminary at the five years um, at HUC, I really did find very early um, in a, a passion and interest in interfaith cooperation, interfaith dialogue, really from the very beginning. Um, and so whatever I would be doing, Whenever there was something that popped up um, that was interfaith, I would always, you know, volunteer or, or look for teaching opportunities, those sort of things. And uh, that continued while I was in congregational work that, you know, I always sought out um, my Christian or, or non-Jewish, um, you know, colleagues, whether it be pastors or ministers or imams or whatever it is. Um, and surrounded myself with them and had great conversations and built that. I mean, part of it was self selfish in terms of if they know me, they won't try to kill me. But the other parts <laughs> are um, growing, you know, and working together are the problems of where we are, you know, and when you have a united front with um, with multiple faith leaders, you can get a lot done. Um, I did recognize after five years of small congregations that I'm not built for the the board member navigating those sort of personalities and the politics of it and um i realized that i just i wasn't getting the things done that i needed to get done and there are certain personalities that are better at that god bless them they know how to navigate boards and board members and get people to think it's their idea and all kinds of other <laughs> stuff that they do. I just don't, I've never had the patience for that. And so, you know, there's always those little toxic people in, um, in congregations, no matter what religion you're in. And some people can just sort of brush them off. I, I, I had a problem with that and I wasn't able to get rid of that. So I, I had to figure out what to do with all of my learning, all of my passions, all of my strengths that was outside the congregational uh, arena and what what evolved was chaplaincy and teaching. And so um, 
I do a great deal of teaching. I wrote my book. I do chaplaincy work. And I, I'm studying towards my PhD, excuse me, studying towards my PhD now with at the Spurtis Institute of Leadership and Learning and hope eventually to, you know, teach on college campuses or, you know, continue to write books. But uh, my passion is outside of the congregational realm, except when I come and speak because I get to leave after it's done and I don't have to hear the arguments about me, you know, in the, in the next week's board meeting. So that's really what what propelled me to sort of find my own way um, and go off the beaten path of uh, trying to become a, you know, a diplomat, an ambassador of Judaism to Christians. And, um, you know, certainly the times here in America and Europe and Israel and everything certainly call for that. So um, seemed like a good, good time. Yeah. Dad, did you have any questions? The, the only contact I have is I, I, I did read your book. Huh. Other than that, I know nothing about you. Okay. And I, and I, I found your book fascinating because um, one of my pet peeves in my studies of Judaism and subsequent my studies of Christianity when my son announced that he was becoming a Christian is something that you write about in your book. I think the Pharisees get a terrible terrible they're treated terribly by christians generally and christians yeah. don't know who pharisees were they have no idea what they stood for and they completely misrepresented in mainstream christianity so that part of your book i really connected with oh i'm glad yeah that's one i speak about and teach about a lot um it comes up far too often in um difficult conversations um but i will add that if you read my book you don't know um nothing about me because there's a great deal of personal stories in there and and you can see a bit of of my history so you do know a little bit about me from reading my book i do yeah since since my dad brought it up let's dive into the book i i wanted to start you you've already alluded to this mission to be a diplomat to christians uh this passion for interfaith collaboration cooperation i was curious if you could share with us what your initial objective was in starting to write the book and what your hope once now it's out there what, what is your hope with the with and it's again it's called let's talk rabbi speaks to christians thank you yeah i you know the the impetus for the book was basically that i had become sort of accidentally a resource for christian leadership and lay people in whatever destination I was. And I started to see the same questions being asked, the same uh, mistakes being made, the same um, curiosities and, the, and the, the, the lack of understanding of certain things you could just start to sense. And in me, my becoming a resource, I would, I would answer questions via email or phone. You know, the, They would call me, um, my Christian colleagues would call me and say, I'm doing a sermon on this. What the heck does this mean? I forget my Hebrew, you know, or um, is this, I read this in, you know, our New Testament reading is this, is this offensive or whatever it is? Can you give me that? And I started to realize that, you know, these are not the only people who have these questions. And while some, uh, I'm glad to say I know of many uh, rabbis serve as resources for Christians in, in 
cities all over America, um, there are there is a need for sort of a starter handbook, um, something that you don't have to call your rabbi for, or God forbid, you don't even have a resource in your town that you can look at and read and get you started thinking about um, the big gaps between Judaism and Christianity and, and the big misunderstandings and the things that come so naturally to Christians that are in what I call Christianese, the language um, that they didn't even know could be uh, problematic or offensive or, or worse. And so I, I started to put these things together and I recognized that there was a need for this. Um, you know, there was a market for this, that um, Christian leadership, you know, um, Jewish and Christian students, you know, Christian lay people, uh, they want, they hunger for these things. And what I'm talking about is the good-natured, good-hearted, open-minded Christians. You know, I, I'm not here to try to uh, fight against the malicious anti-Semites. I'm not going to get through to them. But there are, there is a wealth of people out there who don't know they're being a little bit anti-Semitic, that they've just grown up with certain things. And they want to be better. They don't, they don't want to be that way. They want to be better allies, and they don't know where to start. Um, certainly today, with the rise of Christian nationalism and Christofascism, there's Christians out there who are like, I don't even know what to start. I don't know what to do. And my book is that starting place. It's the place to say it's 200 pages. It's not exhaustive by any means. But um, it's a place to say, hey, did you know? And, and it gets them to think about it. And the reviews that I've gotten show that it it does leave an impact um yeah. and, and you know and so now that it's out there you know i i talk on radio shows and podcasts as you've seen um you know there's book clubs that have it i i teach at a seminary here and there and you know it's been on the lists of curriculum for for college and things like that and so i'm just trying to spread it out there to say that this resource exists and there's so many books out there and there's so much research out there you know i'm just trying to say this is a good starter place for for good-natured and good-hearted christians and jews who maybe didn't know these things i did the work for you so you didn't have to <laughs> so you didn't have to yeah. um so i was curious if you've it's so to your point yes i can see where so much of the book is a good uh conversation starter uh, especially at the end of the book where you have the 18 questions right. that it's a really great resource at the end but again it's it's really a conversation starter you you reference i one of the things first things i did i checked in your acknowledgments and there are some of your some of the first people you thank boyer you know boyer in wow that that just blew my mind so there are some people that you know have have certainly been along this path um studied first century uh, palestine or you know, uh, cross-cultural interfaith dialogue, uh, historic anti-Semitism, and you're helping to distill a lot of that information, uh, very uh, digestible for, for a uh, consumer-friendly uh, folks who are interested in this material. I've been curious if you've received any feedback from your Christian colleagues, whether um, there are specifically uh, helpful aspects of the book or aspects of the book that you've heard from Christian colleagues where they said, you know, this, this was off-putting this, um, this, I had a problem with. Hmm. I think they're great questions. And, um, you know, the, the main thing that I wanted to do was make the, the material 
uh, as you said, digestible, an easy read. And I've, I, like I said, I've studied Boyerin and Fishbane and, and Van Cedars. And like, I, I'll, I get headaches from, from how in depth and dense and <laughs> stuff that is. And so what I try to do is pull that out. And if you look at my index, you know, you'll see there's all the books you want to read the books, feel free. Um, but I wanted this to be um, something that was, you know, anyone could pick this up and not feel overwhelmed. Um, so that was the main, as you said, the main point. Um, I have the the 99% of what I have heard has been positive. Um, Mind-blowing, eye-opening, eye um, aha moments, uh, using as a resource, transformative, um, really you know, humbling and flattering things that have been said to me by um, not just, um, you know, Christian lay people, but Christian professionals, pastors, priests. And I've gotten an especially positive sort of hook with those who are going through deconstruction right now. Going through what? Deconstruction. So like the ex-evangelicals that... Those right, are exactly. So ex-evangelicals or ex-Jehovah's Witness or ex-fundamentalists who are trying to restart and uh, do away with some of the embedded anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism that exists within the core of certain Christian beliefs. And, um, and so I've become sort of, uh, one of the, one of the books that they recommend to do that in regards to the negative aspect. Um, most people say that I'm, I'm much nicer in my book than I am on social media and they're right. <laughs> um, I'm, I tried to be very, uh, understanding and, and, and a lot of people had said like, you're very kind, um, and, and patient in your book. Um, and that's true. My patience runs out a lot on social media and I get snarky, but um, I've heard that, but the other, the really only small, small percentage that I have seen from uh, negativity regarding my work comes from sort of people who are in the in-between, you know, messianics who um, have, have their own sort of uh, problems and fundamentalists, right, who, who just, you know, want to throw the book at the wall um, and say this destroys my whole, you know, mindset. But that's not who the book is for, right? The book is for those people who are hungry to learn and open, uh, whether they're going through deconstruction or they're, they're trying to rethink whether at, you know, um, at 20 or at 60 or at 80, their religion. And um, with the, uh, what we're seeing, sort of the breakdown and decline of American Christianity in terms of the churchianity, in terms of the political arms and stuff like that, there's a lot of people who don't know where to start and what to do. Um, and so this, you know, I, I, I extend this hand of, you know, give this a shot and see what you think. You might hate it. You might love it. Um, but I, I've only gotten really the majority is, is positive feedback. I'm, I'm very proud to say. Let me see if I can shake that up a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I do, I do have some specific points of contention, but they, they are very specific points of contention, but dad, it looked like you had something to, uh, to add. Yeah. Something that, um, that touched me reading the book that impressed me reading the book that particularly relates to my experience uh, coming to religion, not Judaism, but religion late in life. Um, your book is great if you don't believe in, um, 
in a literal Bible. Correct. You know, very fair to say. And I think it's very challenging for a person to be a person of faith and to also look at the Bible critically. Mm. I think that that's, I know in my own case, I almost have to um, become two different people um, uh, psychologically and um, intellectually. When I'm davening and when I'm facing a serious challenge in life now that I'm religious, um, I honestly believe in God and that God has a plan and has a plan specifically for me and that I can find the help I need and the direction I need in my Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, and in commentaries and rabbinic literature and all that stuff. Yeah. And then when I go out into the secular world, I would I have a different mentality and psychology and worldview. I you know, I mean, because I agree with you in the sense that. I don't think the Bible is a historical document. I don't think it's an errant. And that's a tough, it's tough to walk those two roads at the same time. I'm familiar. Thank you for saying that. I'm familiar with those two roads. Um, and, you know, there was a time where I would, I would be teaching, you know, top scholarship and then have to go lead Mincha or something. You know what I mean? Like there and, you know, so a, a congregant of mine came up to me once because I was going over that there's no archaeological evidence for us to be in Egypt and uh, for us being in Egypt and that Micha Mocha is um, this inset poem that predates a great deal of the Exodus or all this sort of scholarship stuff. And she said to me, like, now when I go and I and I daven and, and you know, and, and chant or sing Micha Mocha, is that what I'm supposed to be thinking about? And I said, no, of course not. Uh, no, like you're not supposed to be analyzing all that stuff when you're done. No, Micha Mocha and that sort of um, the song of the sea that's been embedded into our liturgy has its own history of beauty and its meaning and like dive into that, right? You're not supposed to bring the intellectual exercise and biblical criticism into shul with you. As a rabbi who used to lead, um, you know, services, and teach this, uh, there are difficult moments to try to figure out uh, things, but it is possible, at least in my experience and other people's experiences that I know, to have faith and to love um, Jewish worship and liturgy and- And believe in God. Right, and right, and believe in God. Um, right, the belief in God has nothing to do with whether the Torah is real or not to me, um, you know, or, or is literary or not. That to me is not, I don't hold God in the box of, of just of the Torah. I know that's hard for a lot of people, but that's the route that a lot of people, including myself, have to take and to say that I'm not going to bury my head in the sand when I have all of this scholarship and science and archaeology available. But that also doesn't mean I'm going to throw everything out, right? I grew up Jewish, you know, um, I, I, I still live as a Jew. I became a rabbi. I'm not going to throw away the meanings of thousands of years of tradition and beauty and guidance that Judaism and Jewish thought can can do. So I, 
I empathize with the struggle of it, but I think it leads to fruitful things. At one point in the book, I, and you know, I didn't t- write this note down, but you just said something and you reminded me of that a friend of yours basically is, is um, anti-skeptic. Uh, he, he believes the story of the Bible until he has reason to believe otherwise. Whereas you come at it from, you're skeptical until you have reason to believe in the, the, yes. the historical, it, it, you know, the historicity of it, if you will. You're speaking of the minimalist versus maxim, maximalist yeah, of, exactly. you, uh, of, of the biblical literature. Yes. I think though, a lot of the book tends to be responding to, in ways, those who hold a literalistic view, a six literal 24 hour days. At one point you were speaking of, of uh, what I think of as young earth creationism. So I, I didn't want to ask you though, do, do you have are you more frequently speaking to fundamentalists or young earth creation denominations? Um, are, who are you speaking with um, more in your interfaith dialogue? Also maybe describe, describe if you have, if you are speaking to different denominations, if you have more success with uh, certain folks uh, than, than others. Of course, absolutely. Um, and I'd like to take this, um, this discussion to predate the book yeah. From when I would just sort of teach this stuff and didn't have my, I wasn't a published author yet, but I had all this stuff with me. And I would say overall, you know, what we're seeing now in, in America is sort of this pulling to extremes of fundamentalism, meaning like vast fundamentalism and sort of secularism and everybody is sort of in between is figuring out what to do. And so when we say like, I'm speaking to fundamentalists, like I don't, I don't speak and teach to evangelicals and, and, you know, the um, assemblies of God and all like the strong arms of what we would call fundamentalist Christians. One, because they, they don't invite me. Um, <laughs> they, they don't want anything to do with me. Uh, I've tried knocking on their doors as, you know, as a rabbi, as a friend or whatever, they want nothing to do with me, but there are little pockets, whether it's in an Episcopal, Episcopalian, Baptist, American Baptist, Southern Baptist, Methodist, uh, whatever it is, of little literalists or half literalists, <laughs> yeah. or they're not sure literalists that are there. Those are who I'm speaking to, right? They're, they, they attend a relatively progressive, at least in relation to what we are seeing in terms of conservative now, um, church you know, there, um, there might be a split half and half of pro-choice, pro-life, you know, LGBT affirming or deny. I mean, there's, there'll be a mix of it. Right. But in, in there are people who have the capacity because some of the things they hear, they like some of the things they hear, they don't like, but they keep going and they want to learn and grow. That's who, in terms of the literalists that I encounter, that's who they are the people who said, I've always thought this, or I've always believed this, or I was taught this, or what about this? Those are great times for me to say, yeah, but what if, and I throw something in there and what I, you know, what I encounter is, um, you know, if you go on my um, social media, my logo is, is me pulling out Jenga pieces. Mm. Um, 
and I love to watch the tower fall because <laughs> um, if you pull out a little piece, one little brick the wrong way at the wrong speed at the, whatever it is, the whole thing comes crashing down. That is not to say that you can't have a crazy, you know, missing pieces balancing Jenga tower, but I love it with love and devotion toppling the tower that has been built on misinformation or um, literalism or whatever it is. And if you just sort of wiggle it a little, all of a sudden it's a new world for that person. And um, it's productive discomfort and it's, um, you know, transformative. And that's what I love to do. And so those people hidden inside those churches who just aren't sure what to do with some of the thoughts we've been speaking about. Well, I don't think this, and I'm a person of, I'm a scientist or whatever it is, you know, saying my book basically says it's okay, right? You're not the only one having these, <laughs> these thoughts. Yeah. And guess what? There's all this scholarship about it and, and it's okay to think that. Guess what? A rabbi says it's okay. Yeah. They love that. Oh, the rabbi me, it's okay to think that, you know, you, I'm just one rabbi, but still it holds weight. You remind me of uh, one of my best buddies, a guy named Tommy Givens. Uh, he's a professor <laughs> now at Fuller and he grew up, he was a pastor's kid. Uh, pastor Tom was great. May he rest in peace. Um, but he was the pastor of the biggest church in, uh, I live in Santa Cruz, California. And you're, you're, you're probably familiar with John MacArthur. I mean, talk about fundamentalist, yeah. uh, literalist views. So that's the valley that we're in. That's the town and the area that we're in. And so much of our theological thinking is dominated by that kind of thinking. So Tommy being the kid of, of the pastor of the biggest church in town, he he's a really intelligent, thoughtful guy. He goes away and he starts studying. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with guys like John Howard Yoder or Tom N.T. Wright. Um, he starts studying that stuff. He goes to graduate school. Uh, then he decides he wants to go for his Ph.D. and he ends up getting into um, into Duke. In his initial interview at Duke, he studies with the the infamous uh, Stanley Hauerwas. Hauerwas asks, hey, so what are you reading these days? He says, you know, John Howard Yoder. And Yoder studied first century, um, uh, first century Palestine, was a very influential late 20th century uh, theologian, uh, as is N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright's offered great historical scholarship uh, on first century Palestine. So Tommy says, yeah, so I've been reading a lot of, a lot of Yoder. And, and Harawas says, uh, you know, you're expecting this, you know, infamous guy, theologian, Duke Divinity School to have some profound thing to say. Oh, you know, I thought this. Harawas goes, Yoder, huh? Well, that's a real mind fuck. <laughs> Talk about pulling the Jenga piece out and Tommy's, you know. But that, No, for sure. Yeah, those great. I leaders, love that, though. They'll do that for you. And it's a gift right. in a way, you know. It is. And I love that. I love when people say to me, you're genuine, right? And I study with genuine, real people, right? If I meet a, uh, if I meet a, a Christian pastor who wants to be cool with me. If he doesn't use curse words, I'm, I'm, I don't believe that he exists. And, you know, like he's just not being, I think he's full of shit. Exactly. He's, be, you know, he doesn't know how to take off the mask and be like, boy, that was, that was shit, you know? And like, um, that's, that's who I want. I want to be that person and study with those people who are able to say like that completely fucked up my head.
Yeah. Like, and I'm like, <laughs> good. It's supposed to, you know, that's a good thing. And let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's the kind of learning that, um, that I try to push. There was a lot in your book that really resonated with me. Um, in particular, I call it broadly under the category of uh, cultural appropriation. You know, you, you talked about the Seder, you talked about other, um, yeah. you know, the way that uh, may, maybe um, some of our Christian friends, and, and again, I'm a Christian, I'm, I believe in the whole Jesus died and rose again thing. Um, uh, but so going to church, some of the things that I've been most at odds with is this appropriation where, hey, come to our Seder, because this is what the Seder really means. I'm like, what? Right. That's the say. That's my deal. Like, don't tell. Right, like, exactly. don't tell. This is what it really means. But I find that sh um, it's like uh, the 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 colonists have come and told the the heathens, you know, what what they're really supposed to believe and what life is real. Like, no, no, no. We got the seder. Thank you very much. You know. So some of that really, really resonated yeah. with me. So I mean that. I mean that is a perfect way to say it. I mean proselytization and missionary work is intellectual imperialism, basically. Um, and, um, yeah, to be able to say to someone, actually, you, what you're talking about is supersessionism and replacement theology, and that, you know, our books better than we do. And it's, there's nothing good that comes from that, right. In terms of that. And that's why I would say, like, if, if a Christian wants to come to my Seder and it will strengthen their Christian beliefs and beautify their, their great, perfect, of course, anyone's welcome to the table but don't have one on your own and then call Jesus the lamb and the blood of, you know, and the blood and the blood of the, like, don't do that. That's not cool. Like, um, and so that's, that's basically what I, I do try to uh, have people shy away from because if they don't know that it's wrong or they don't know that, you know, it comes from uh, sort of uh, uh, an unpleasant place, then they think they're just celebrating something that Jesus celebrated, which he didn't, you know, they're missing, they're missing these important uh, historical points, um, you know, that the Seder didn't exist in the first century. And, um, you know, they didn't eat latkes um, after Maccabees. I mean, like no, all they kinds did have of bagels and cream cheese. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. Locks. Right. And um, <laughs> not on Passover, but right. Exactly. And I, you know, I, I, I teach it to Jews as well. Right. Is that, there, there is a point where um, we need to sort of grow up from Sunday school. Um, and, and it's nice to tell the story about the dreidel, but like, give me a break. Let's talk, you know, we know why it was written, you know. And I do that with, you know, in the same way when I'm talking to my Christian friends. You know, one of the things that I heard once when I was at the Chautauqua Institution was um, one of the speakers said, um, the problem with being born again is you'd never grow up. And, um, you know, you have these denominations of Christianity where you're born again and you're born again and you're born again and you're born again and um, eventually need to mature and, and, and head to the intellectual stuff and not keep that sort of like um, that infancy of it all. That raises an interesting question. Is faith a product of emotion or is faith a product of um, wisdom, uh, you know, of, of, of an intellectual yeah. pursuit? Um, let me tell you a quick story. I'm very fortunate in the sense that I, I, I read the Gospels for the first time as a virgin. Namely, I didn't know anything about Christianity. I didn't know much about Christianity. 
And when I read the Gospels the first time, having studied Judaism and having have a background in history, I majored in European history in college, went to grad school. I said, holy cow, Jesus is a Pharisee. He's a Halal school Pharisee. And all of these disputes, he sounds just like a Pharisee. And then to go to church with Corey and hear what the Christian concept of what a Pharisee is was kind of like mind blowing to me. I said, these people, they don't know their own book. Yeah. Right. To this day, I still can't go to the passion place. I, I, I went, I was even involved thinking that I could have an impact on it, but the depiction, first of all, they conflate Pharisees with the Sadducees and make them all quote unquote, the Jews. I, it makes me want to throw up the, the depiction. And, and I don't think that that particular church realizes that they're perpetuating um, something that's nothing short of anti-Semitic. Uh, you know, our family left Ukraine in the early 1900s. Uh, and the worst pogroms were always after the passion plays that depicted right. the Jews in this particular way. So, so yes, I, I think that all of that is, um, is important. And I, and I, one of the main things I do try to teach nowadays, as I'm working on my second book is to make sure that Christians can acknowledge the anti-Jewish, anti-Jewishness and the anti-Judaism that exists inside the gospels that have led to anti-Semitism and the distinction between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, um, which I write about in the, in the book. But um, and there are aspects of the gospels that are anti-Jewish, but not maliciously so, and some rather that that are. Um, but what I really, what I try to fight against quite often is this idea that I hear from sort of Christian apologists, is that, and that is that um, all of these things that have happened over, over 2000 years, whether it be the pogroms or Kilmitsky massacres or crusades or inquisitions or the Shoah, um, were all misinterpretations of the gospels in the new Testament. And I, I do have to try and push back on that and say, I'm not sure that's true. Um, I think certain aspects are being interpreted exactly as the author thought others might not be um but there is a there is a you can track the steps of where that verse came from and what they do because of it the pogroms happened after the passion play but the passion play didn't come out of nowhere it came out of the blood curse um from matthew and all like you know the perpetual idea of all of this people may not think that now but they sure as heck thought it then um and still do in certain ways and so um trying not to vilify um, the New Testament in general, which I'm not doing, but to make sure that Christians are aware of the heaviness, uh, whether it's John who mentions the Jews in a negative way over 70 times, whether it's uh, Matthew erasing certain aspects of Judaism or the, or the, the aspects of deicide, you know, all of that stuff has to be acknowledged and spoken about. And that's, I, I dabble on that a little bit in this See, book. the problem for a Christian is that for a Christian to acknowledge that, they also have to acknowledge that their holy book is not inerrant. Correct. And again, that's the hard part, right? Um, and I, I put that openly in, in my book and saying, this is going to be hard, but I need you to think about it differently. 
because there's no conversation to be had with a literalist, right? It's either this is how it is, or this is, or and if you don't believe that, there's something wrong with you, and there you don't get very far. But if you can open up a little bit and say, what if this was actually written two generations later um, by a person who was trying to self-preserve Jewish Christianity, which was new? They didn't want to associate with Judaism because Jews had just been destroyed and the temple destroyed and they couldn't write badly about Rome because of the political stuff. So you had to, you know, and you start thinking about it like that makes sense of, in terms of why it's a little polemical um, and why, you know, um, Pontius Pilate, who was a murderous, horrible thug in Rome, who was so bad they had to call Rome called him back um, because he was killing too many people is written as sort of like this logical kind, you know, well, it's up to you guys if you want to kill this guy. But I, like, if you read any historical aspect about Pilate, he was, he was a, a sociopath. I mean, he would have killed someone just for fun, but, you know, trying to blend those things together, I dabble in it in this book, but I don't want, I didn't want to focus on that. My next book, on the other hand, that's where I really dive into that stuff. Corey, I'd love to hear your response. <laughs> yeah, so Pontius Pilate is not painted as a hero in the in the gospel accounts. I think one, one or you know one account might uh, be softer on on him right. than than others, but the guy at the very least was uh, was not was not the hero of the story. But no. I mean, do you believe that the <laughs> gospels are inerrant? Do you believe that this this is the divinely inspired truth? So the way the way I think of of the Gospels, the way I think of the the um, the entire Bible, including Hebrew Bible, is um, is authoritative. I wouldn't say inerrant. I would say authoritative. What so what does that mean? So okay. So let's talk about um, what we would think of as the closest to historical accounts. For example, the the Gospel accounts. Now I understand that they weren't like when when um, George Floyd was killed, uh, was murdered. There was somebody there with a video recorder who could make, a, a, you know, as close to an actual account of what actually happened. We don't have that. And I understand that it was at least a generation, if not two, that the gospel accounts were written. And I also understand that they were human authors so that um, we have to uh, historically contextualize who they were writing to, what audience that, that it was meant for. I understand all that. But I also understand that to the degree that we can construct history, these um, pieces of evidence, if you will, are, are great, are, are excellent and, and, and are, are a treasure trove for us to put together history. Uh, so if you, if you look at somebody I mentioned before, N.T. Wright's work, N.T. Wright went about his, histor his academic historical work, risking the possibility that he, if he did his job as a historian, he would shake, he would completely shake a lot of his fundamental beliefs as a Christian. I think he came out the other side with some of those uh, tertiary and secondary beliefs shaken, but having a much deeper, richer understanding of the history from which uh, from which these documents were written. N.T. Wright is, is a much better teacher for me about um, where the New, uh, New Testament uh, documents came from, the, the letters, uh, as well as the Gospels a much better teacher than than somebody like Johnny Mac, John MacArthur, for example. Um, and and my my faith isn't shaken because again, I take it as authoritative. In other words, uh, instead of inerrant, oh well, you know, if it's not six literal 24 hour days, six something thousand years ago, then the whole thing's no, I just don't think that's I don't think that's the the um 
I don't think that's what we're supposed to take out of Genesis 1 and 2. So authoritative, though, in other words, we have we have stories that we've been telling uh, to each other as a people to help us understand who we are, to help us understand, get to derive a sense of meaning for why we're here, to help us understand how to live among each other and join with each other in this project of tikkun olam. Uh, the, the Christians might give a different word for it, but, you know, uh, taking this, this imperfect creation and, and um, taking part in, in making it better towards something, uh, towards something better, towards something greater, towards something more perfect. So um, to, to try to take that document more seriously than just about any other collection of, of letters and stories and books, um, I, I take it more seriously than just than, than any other collection of stories and books. So I'm kind of, I'm riffing here, but I don't know. That's, that's the best I could give you on the cuff. No, I think um, as long as someone does not consider the gospels or the new Testament as the only authoritative historical source of the period, then I think we're in okay territory, right. In terms of um, look, you know, uh, understanding time and things like that, but also, um, you know, taking, <clears throat> taking beauty and moral and lessons and things like that from, from our text. I mean, what I used to, when I used to teach, um, you know, Sunday school at the synagogue, you know, people would ask what we believe or what I believe in terms of, you know, the Torah and all that sort of stuff. And the line I always said was, um, we don't take the Torah literally, we take it seriously. Mm, that's a good way to put it. And so that leaves room, just as you're saying, for there's an in-between, right? Um, it's not so black and white of, um, you know, of what, what the Israelis would say, dati and chiloni, right? There's no, um, you know, observant or not, or secular, right? I mean, like, that's just simply not how it is. There, we can take these texts seriously as, um, you know, aspects of who we are and traditions and things like that. Um, certain points may be more historical than others, but um, we also have to recognize what are the consequences of that? What are the um, the thoughts of the commentators at the time, right? Who were they? What were, the, you know, don't get me wrong. I love me a good Rashi, but Rashi didn't know that the, that the, that the world was, was round. You know, I mean, what my um, professors used to tell me is, is the, if you want to read what someone thought at the time, that's what you're reading. You know, the only thing that Rashi teaches you is what Rashi thought. The only thing that Ibn Ezra, you know, teaches is what Ibn Ezra thought. And then you can go uh, with I, that. I, I got to stop you there. The great commentators of Torah and Tanakh, like Ibn Ezra and like Rashi, help draw out deeper meaning from things that are very unclear in the literal text. And, and, and in, in a certain sense, they are the equivalent of, of, of academic Bible critics of their time. I don't disagree. They didn't take it literally, you know, but I, if, but you know, it, we're into this about an hour and I wanted to share one minor criticism of your book. Bring it. If I may. I can't believe you're bringing it, not me. Okay, but go ahead. Go ahead. No, go Bring ahead, Corey. No, you first, Dad. Uh, age before beauty. 
<laughs> How about age and beauty? Okay, uh, fair enough. In any event, I'm teasing. I'm getting uglier as I get older. I'm starting to look more and more <laughs> like you. Go ahead, go ahead, go, go. One of my dearest friends is a fund is a hardcore fundamentalist pastor, uh, a Baptist pastor. Okay, and beautiful man, terrific man. And in our conversations, where he wants to understand Judaism better, um, the last thing I'm going to do is tell him that his theological beliefs are wrong that the history that he's learned is wrong. At the beginning, in, in, in your introduction, you're very clear and explicit that this book is intended to foster better relationships, interfaith relationships. There's a very minor criticism, but I don't think the way to do that is to tell people, um, let's get together, but you're really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> is that the uh is is that what should be on uh you know the on the back right the quote is uh you know the summary of the book like let's let's get together but let's be honest you're wrong yeah yeah <laughs> i don't think it would have sold as many but I, you know uh you know i i i take your your criticism and the truth is um fundamentalists don't like me for that reason I bet Jewish fundamentalists don't either. No, they, I mean, I'm stuck in the middle um, uh, between that. Uh, no fundamentalists like me. And I'm strangely okay with that. But the the what you're referring to is sort of a necessary productive discomfort that if we're going to get real um, and I talk about, you know, here's what historically this is, and this is why it's important to know that. Um, my, I don't know, my kindness in terms of letting a person sort of believe what they want to believe ends when it becomes destructive. And there are historical accounts within um, Christian belief or Christian scriptures that have been harmful to Jews. And so when, when Matthew writes the blood curse, for me to tell a Christian that has led to genocide, millions of Jews, men, women, and children massacred because of this idea of deicide. I am happy to acknowledge with them that they believe that this is what happened but I'm not going to say, yeah, you can believe that. That's fine. Um, what I'm going to say is you can believe that, but here are the ramifications. Here are the consequences, real consequences to believing that the Jews are responsible for deicide. Um, it's not a harmless conversation. It, there's real, there's real stuff that happens. And so you have to find that balance, right? And I think you're right. It's hard. I think there's also an issue that, Speaking as a Jew, it's hard to tell a Christian anything about right, wrong, whatever it is, because for 2000 years, it's been solidified that we should just shut up. We're, we're wrong. We don't know our texts as well as they do. Um, they're this big empire. There's billions of them, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so it's difficult to 
for a Jewish person, a Jewish scholar, a rabbi, whatever it is, to even give little bits of, um, have you guys thought about this, you know, sort of thing. And that's where that 1% comes in of people who just don't, don't vibe with me is they, they don't see the productive aspects of what I'm, what I'm suggesting. Um, they see it as a, as an attack or, or as a criticism or saying you're wrong. Right. So, but, but that's basically what you are saying. I mean, you right. are saying that. I'm saying it nicely, you yes. know, that, um, and, and that, that <laughs> respectfully, is respectfully, you're wrong. Respectfully, <laughs> right. Respectfully, I, I disagree. Yeah. Um, and here's the ramifications of, of why, I, you know, what happened and why I disagree. But eventually a conversation, an argument, I mean, that's what, that's what we do, right? The rabbis, if you ever read the Talmud, my God, they said more than you're wrong to each other. You yeah. know, they, 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 they went at it, you know, and there's nothing wrong with telling someone you're wrong. Um, as long as you're doing it respectfully, colleague to colleague, friend to friend, let's chat about it. Um, I'm not standing on the corner and saying all Christians are wrong. And that, what would that, have, what would that bring? Um, you know, but what I am saying is, you know, I want you to think about things that maybe you were never taught. Yeah. You mentioned the Talmud and I remember, uh, the first time, or at least one of the first, one of the first times I read through the gospels, I remember think, having the impression whenever I read the encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees, especially certain Pharisees, I thought, man, this sounds like the rabbis talking to each other. So when I, later I, I did read Yoder. Um, and he had that thought experiment. Who would who would Jesus identify with most closely? Would would it have been the Essenes? Would it have been the Zealots? Would it have been you know um, would it be the Pharisees? It was the Pharisees, the Hillel Pharisees. Yeah, the Hillelian Pharisees, of course, the founders of rabbinical Judaism. I mean, Absolutely, I mean, we're all Pharisees now. So I mean, yeah, that that makes sense. And I I, I once said this to my friend. I said, you know, the stuff you believe uh, based on your reading the Gospels has had two impacts. It's denied Jesus to Jews, you know, and it's denied the Jewish Jesus to Christians. Now that's, that's, that, that subject is worth a whole, we might have to get together again because <laughs> I'd want, I'd want my dad to share what his view of Jesus is, but I'm, I'm also curious what your, your view, of, but we, uh, we don't have time for it. Uh, okay. this time we, I, we, when your when your next book comes out about a month or two in advance we'll get together again so we can preview the next book um, okay you but I do, we do have a little bit of time for me to share uh, so some one of the first bits of um, contention that I had is when I heard when I was reading through uh, what, what you said about the Seder but you did come around to it later in the end uh, toward the end of the book where you talked about there, there was probably some form of a Passover meal, I think you referred to, but it wasn't anything like what we have today. So I didn't have as much of a problem by the time I got to the end of the book. Here's where I, oh, sorry, here's where I had the biggest uh, bit of contention in the 18 okay. questions. Yeah. Uh, um, so you said that uh, for uh, once, I don't have the exact quote here, but once a Jew believes in Jesus, he's not a Jew anymore. Oh, here it is. The concept that one can remain Jewish while embracing Jesus is beyond absurd. So respectfully, like, no. Wait, hold on. I, I had a much more um, harsh response to that. Um, I bet. <laughs> but, but is it possible to be Jewish and not believe in God? You were much more open to that. Like, so 
if I believe Jesus yes. is, you know, Mashiach, and you know, I think that he he's he's the one that no, beyond absurd, but not believing in God, that's where I had a problem. And you know, it was at the end of the book, so you didn't have time to flesh that out as much. So no, you're right. Um, and um I I actually you're not the first person to point this out. Um okay. here's where the difference is in Judaism, you are not only um encouraged to, but but um sort of expected to at certain point in your life doubt the existence of god um that's not a problem um you find your way to understand your understanding of god and i'm not just speaking from a reform or conservative point of view this this occurs in orthodox circles as well you know there is now there's a there's what's called a humanistic judaism and i don't i mean I have my own issues with them. Um, and by the, the way, coincidentally, next weekend, I'm going to my best friend's daughter's bat mitzvah. They belong to a humanistic uh, synagogue in DC in Washington, DC. Right. I don't mind the, the belief system. I, 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 what, what bothers me is, is their change of our liturgy. But when we think about the difference between believing a lack of, or, or lack of belief in, in our deity or a deity versus um, adding um, adding a Mashiach or adding um, pagan aspects of a God, a son of God, those sorts of things, um, that does attack the, the inherentness of Judaism in terms of the fact that we still wait for Mashiach, that, um, you know, that uh, God is incorporeal um, and not anthropomorphized. Um, you know, those sorts of aspects are harder um, but, but also, I mean, in Jewish law itself, right. When someone converts, you become a converted Jew, um, in, in Jewish law. And in order to return to the status of Judaism, you have to perform teshuva. So your status changes even through the eyes of Jewish law. And yet right? if Corey comes to my Chabad, he will get an aliyah every time he walks in. Uh, some day, to, depending on the day, I'll, I'll late fill in with the rabbi. And yeah. Yeah, you know, for the 99% of the people who may be listening to this who aren't, you know, the, the non Jews, an aliyah is being called up to the Torah on, on the Sabbath. And only a Jewish male can do that in an Orthodox synagogue. And Corey will be called up and considered an absolute Jew. Um, I mean, listen, I, I can't argue with one. Chabad shul or one Chabad rabbi, there's all kinds of interpretation. Um, but what I'm speaking of is just my, you know, my knowledge of Jewish law. And so if Jewish law states that there is a change of status and that teshuva is needed um, to come back to be Jew again, that's enough to give pause. Is the law to be a, to, in order to be a Jew or to be a Jew in good standing? I don't think they say it that way. Because I mean, because one of the principles that I've learned through Chabad is that if you're born a Jew, nothing else, you're a Jew, for, we, we won't let you go. You were at Mount Sinai, you were there, you have the Pittal Jewish Neshama, and. But that's Chabad, right? That's one particular view, right? Chabad has very, very different views on certain things. Um, and, you know, I have my own thoughts on Chabad, but that doesn't matter in terms of if a particular denomination of Judaism um, decides to, you know, 
say, no, we're not going to do this and we believe this or whatever it is, that's great. But as Judaism is not a monolith, um, you know, I, I could care less what a Chabad rabbi says, um, and they could care less what I say. I know that because I'm friends with Chabad rabbis that have met with them and studied with them. They could care less what I think, just like I care less what they think. But um, there is a there is a problem that we are starting to see in America with messianics um, in terms of holding on to the Jewish bloodline, um, looking to try and bring first century Judaism you know, thereby, but adding this character of Jesus or Yeshua, they call him. A great deal of it is ahistorical. A great deal of it is, is not through Jewish law. Um, and it's extremely problematic. I'm not speaking about Jews for Jews for Jesus, which is a, a cult, but messianics um, are are problematic in that way. And, and um, there's a great deal of subterfuge. There's a great deal of confusion. And, um, and so I, I do have strong views about that. But the idea that someone says to me, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. Um, I believe that Jesus is the son of God, but I'm Jewish. To me, that is absurd because that's why Christianity exists. You are now a Christian. You believe in the Christ, whether you believe in that, that term, anointed one or whatever it is, you have become part of that group. And going back to the tribal aspects, right, of Israelite, Amorite, Hittite, right? Um, the whole thing is you can't go over to another tribe, right? That's why we, you know, you didn't know intermarriage or all that stuff, right? It's all about preserving who you are, right? You're worshiping another deity, whether you believe it's the same deity or not, doesn't matter. You're worshiping a different deity. And so when that is distinctly different from having a crisis of faith and deciding, I don't know if I believe in God, the subtraction versus the addition is I think where your question comes into play with me is that if you want to subtract and doubt the existence of God, um, that's a little easier than adding another deity and adding a pagan idea or an anthropomorphized idea or a Mashiach, right? Um, just like Sabbateans or Frankists or whatever it is. But Sabbateans are no longer Jews and Frankists are no longer Jews, right? Um, in the way that Christians are no longer Jews. They have a heritage and, um, you know, they, they date, date back 2000 years to where they began as Jews. But as soon as they began to embrace a messianic figure that was outside of the Jewish realm and embrace the pagan idea of, of a son of God, um, they stopped, they ceased being Jewish. And so I find it very difficult to hold them to a different standard than to someone in 2023 who says, my beliefs are Christian, but I'm Jewish. But again, that's a, you know, that's my personal stuff. And so to some, it makes sense. And to some, it um, charges you up. And um, that's the beauty of, <laughs> that's the beauty of the book, right? Is um, someone's, someone's going to get offended by something or it's going to hit yeah. something personal to them. But at least, you know, at least we talk about it and you you can okay. decide if you if, if you haven't offended anybody, you've not said something important. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you, um, but I also try to be respectful and that there's nothing wrong with that belief. But to hold one foot into Judaism while diving into Christian beliefs, um, you have to let go. I want Corey to hold on. 
<laughs> I mean, right. Either one way or the other, right. Is, is hold on um, or, or let go. Um, and that's what 2000 years has shown us is that um, the term Jewish Christian has, hasn't existed since the first century. Okay. So, so I have, I have some thoughts. Uh, for, so one, for the record, um, I attended meetings, get togethers of both uh, Jews for Jesus, as well as Messianic Jews. I think you and I share a particular aversion <laughs> to, for, I, I, I just didn't feel at home. I subterfuge is a great word to use there. Um, I, yeah. I, it just didn't, <laughs> it, I'm like, it's just not right. Yeah. Y'all can call yourselves whatever you want, but like, I can go out and throw the baseball with my kid and put a Mets hat on. It doesn't mean I'm a New York Met. So do me a favor. Let's not pretend this is something that it isn't. What I will say, though, about my theological convictions is that I, I think a good, way to, a good way to have an illustration is that uh, reading through N.T. Wright's um, more academic work, I know he has stuff that is shorter books that's more accessible, but his lengthier academic work, especially um, for, for purpose of this conversation, the first of those, I think it's five volumes in that because there's two volumes on Paul. The first one is called New Testament of the People of God. It really paints a detailed historian's picture of first century Palestine. And within that historical picture, um, I read that relatively early on when I was a Christian, so I could reimagine myself in first century Israel and having this theological debate among other Jews. Hey, I think this dude is Mashiach, you know, and having that conversation. And I know for me, even before I came to that, uh, some of that academic work, I, my response to uh, Jesus's, uh, the, the Jesus character in the New Testament account, in the gospel accounts, was as a Jew. For, so, for example, when I got to Matthew 5, I didn't know that I was reading Sermon on the Mount. I wasn't as familiar with the text. What I recognized uh, was uh, this Jesus giving a Devar Torah, as if he was the rabbi of this collection of people that were following him. So, so my, my um, Christian identity is more based on theological convictions. So I think we're, even if we were to agree on, on, uh, on academic history, um, some, some aspects of academic history or theological things, we, I'm sure there'd be a point where we diverge uh, probably sooner rather than later. And that's okay. Um, but, but like I said, we're already over our hour. Um, that's so, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll let you respond to that if you like, but I do have two more questions. Um, did you want to respond to that or you want me to get? No, to no, no. I think, I think we're, we're, where we're at. Yeah. yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one question is whether you have any questions for me or my dad. Just if we can do this again, let's do it uh, again. Okay. <laughs> Cause it, it feels like we just kind of opened up the, the door and, uh, there's, there's a lot well, there's more to lots talk of about. stuff. I mean, yeah. uh, we, we, I mean, with all, every question is its own episode. I mean, uh, yeah. Bring bring my Gaston on. Oh, that'd be interesting. <laughs> bring no, my Gaston on. Pe with, with... People have been telling me that I, I we should have um, folks of you know on different sides of important issues a little bit more often. You can have the two mics. <laughs> the two mics, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Dad, did you have any last questions, whether it's for me or for Rabbi Mike? Rabbi Mike. I think I spoke. I, I think I've spoken too much. Yeah. Oh no, not at all. No such thing. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, you have a sense of why when me and my dad get together, this often is accompanied by a good, uh, 
a good rye or a good uh, bourbon. I agree. That's the only <laughs> thing missing here is uh, um, <laughs> a little liquid courage. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the other last question is, how can we find more information about you, your work, about the 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 book? Um, let's uh, Rabbi Speaks to Christians, Let's Talk. How can we find you online and, and uh, more about all the great work that you're doing? Sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, very easily, um, you go to rabbimichaelharvey.com. Uh, that will bring up the book. It will bring up my YouTube channel. It'll br bring up my Twitter page. Um, it'll bring up um, where, you know, some of the projects that I've been working on, whether it be the YouTube channel, the podcasts, um, resources for audiobook listeners. You can see the press um, where I mentioned in podcast appearances, which I'll add this one. Um, events of book signings um, and how just to contact me. Um, but I am on basically every, um, almost every social media platform, whether it be um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, all that sort of stuff. And so I always welcome um, discussion. And, um, and I always say that, you know, people can be afraid to, if they have a question, to ask a figure like myself, I mean, you know, if you if you see me on Twitter, there's 11,000 followers and I'm always whatever it is. But if you write me a message, I'm going to answer. And if you have a question, I'm going to answer it. Um, that's what I do. That's how I started out. And that's what I continue to do. So I always encourage people that um, find me on social media. And if you got a question, ask me, email me or uh, shoot me a message on Instagram or Twitter um, or Facebook, whatever it is. And let's chat. Let's talk. Let's chat. Um, and if I can't answer it, I'll direct you to who can, and I'll give you resources and all that sort of stuff. But, um, that's really the heart of, of what I try to be, um, outside the, outside the book and the author of it all is, um, is continue to be that resource. So if you go to rabbimichaelharvey.com, it's a good start for you. Um, okay. So, and, and I will have Rabbi Michael Harvey in the show notes, uh, rabbimichaelharvey.com in the show notes. Uh, so it's an easy link. So, some of the platforms don't have the hyperlinks, but mo most of them do. Apple doesn't, Spotify does. So, uh, but I'll put it in there and hyperlink it and all that good stuff. So I promise this is the last question. So you said St. Louis, are, does that make you a Cardinals fan? Yes. I knew there was a, another reason I didn't like you. <laughs> 2006, I'm still reeling from that, the buckling of the knees of Carlos Beltran. <laughs> okay. Uh, I remember. Right. I remember. <laughs> yeah, of course you would. All right. As always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend about talk politics and religion not killing each other. We did it today. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. 
We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Yeah.